Amen. Well, again, let me say to you, good morning. How is everybody? I didn't ask this earlier. I said, Merry Christmas. Very few people answered. So now I feel obligated to follow up with how are you? You're good. Okay, perfect. Praise the Lord. Uh, uh, Steve threw his hands up. I don't know if that was in celebration or surrender. We're going to go with celebration today. Praise the Lord. And so uh, anyway, it is good to be with you all. I do want to remind you, I failed to remind you earlier, and uh, I think Brianna uh, sent me a message to remind you all that uh, for our children that are in service still, we do have an activity sheet for them. Uh, so whether you're young or young at heart, uh, that is available for you. Uh, for the young, if they fill out the sheet, keep up with the tally marks, they can find Brianna after service, and she has a prize for you. For the young at heart who need a distraction and are filling out that sheet, and if you need the satisfaction of knowing that you did a job well done, you too can see Brianna, and she will give you a high five and, and say, well, well done on keeping up with the tally marks. So anyway, all that to say, uh, that is available for your young ones. I believe it's in the back. Uh, on our table back there. So if you need to grab that, feel free to do so. Well, we are getting down to our final uh, two weeks of this Advent season. Again, uh, as we've already sung about and heard, uh, we celebrate Advent and we celebrate by saying that Christ has come and Christ is coming again. Now, we have been uh, in our series together walking through the Psalms, uh, Psalms that we've titled or a title that we've given to Psalms of the Messiah, where we have been reading about the prophecies of the Messiah. Messiah to come. And so living in light of the fact that Jesus Christ has come, we gather today to celebrate the fact that he has come, that he is coming again. And so now today we wait with eager or joyful anticipation of the second coming of Jesus Christ, which again will culminate, if you will, in the, in the finalization of, of hope and love and joy and peace that is found in knowing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. So this morning, as we've been doing each week through this series, we are going to be looking at another aspect of the Advent, and we are going to look at peace this morning, and not just peace in general, but a peace that comes both at the birth of Jesus Christ, but also for us today, living in light of the fact that we now live in the promise of Jesus Christ since he has come and we wait again for the peace that will be fully restored when he comes again. Thanks be to God. Now, with that being said, I want to ask you this morning um, and just for you to think on, if someone were to ask you about peace or they were to ask you what is peace, how would you answer that question? If someone were to ask you today to define peace, how would you define peace? peace for that person. I would imagine many of us would have just a range of answers today. I imagine some of those answers in light of the Christmas season would start, peace to me is a night of uninterrupted sleep. Thanks be to God and praise the Lord. Some of us would probably define peace as a day where there is no more fighting, a day where there's no more drama. Some people in this season coming off all the campaigns and the voting that we just saw would probably say a day of peace will come when there is no more politics or no more commercials about politicians and what they do or do not believe. I would imagine that many of us probably think about what peace is and we think of a sunset over the ocean and as we watch the sun just literally fade away behind the waters. I'd imagine also there are a few of us who may say, peace to me is that cool morning sunrise in the mountains, sitting out on the front porch overlooking the valley with a cup of coffee. 
Now, if I had to guess today, I would imagine that none of us would say, oh, peace to me is that morning commute that I make every day to Tampa, followed by the evening commute coming back. I don't hear anybody talking about the peace they have found in the midst of the traffic that they are sitting in. In, in fact, I would, I would dare to say that many of us would probably not say, oh, peace to me is leaving the mall at this point. And I say that because I don't know if you're aware, but at our mall here locally, they literally have signs that tell you how far you are away from leaving. Okay? Now, I'm going to go ahead and, and, and forewarn you later this week, they're going to not read the amount of minutes to get you out of the mall. They're going to read, abandon hope for all is lost. Okay? So get your shopping done early and elsewhere, please. I would imagine that some of us in defining peace would probably have maybe some simpler answers, if you will. Maybe peace is that moment that comes when a child sleeps in our arms. Or maybe peace is simpler than that. It's that moment when you put your cell phone down and it doesn't light up, text, ding, ring, buzz, whatever it does. Either way, I would imagine that all of us have a different idea of what peace is and what peace would be. However, I want to take this question one step further and ask you, have you ever given much thought to what peace would look like, not for you, the individual, but for us as the collective community? You see, this is where we find ourselves in our text this morning as we begin to read Psalm 80. You see, here in Psalm 80, we see the psalmist, along with the community of believers, are now seeking a peace that can only come from God. So notice as we read this passage together, they are not just looking for any peace whatsoever, but rather they are seeking a peace that exists between them and God. So if you're here and you're hearing this word peace over and over and over again this morning, don't think of it in terms of peace between one another. Don't think of it in terms of peace between brothers and sisters or peace within the community, but rather I want us to focus on the peace that exists between God and the people of God. And so we get to Psalm 80 and we see the people praying and pleading along with the psalmist for a peace that they once knew. Hoping for a peace restored. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I want to encourage you to join with me as we begin reading Psalm 80. And I want to let you know that we will not be reading Psalm 80 in its entirety. We're going to read the first seven verses, and then we're going to skip over to verse 17 and read the, to the end. So hopefully you are there in your Bibles, and if you are, I would invite you now, if you can, you're able to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Again, this is Psalm 80. Subheading to the choir master, according to Lilies, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. Here is the word of the Lord, verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. 
You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Skip with me to verse 17. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, again, if I could just open this for you quickly, we do see quite the lengthy subheading that exists here from the psalm, which honestly kind of points to the fact that when you read this psalm in its original Hebrew, the, the subheading was actually hard to interpret. In fact, some scholars believed that the, heading, the subheading here uh, actually meant a musical instrument or a style of music that is now unknown to us today. However, most scholars would agree that the wording here or the, the reference here to lilies is actually more accurate to what it is the psalm is talking about. You see, this psalm and the subheading referring to the, the lilies actually points us to the subject of the psalm, which is the people of God speaking to God and thus knowing that this is the people of God pleading to God. The people themselves almost seem innocent and frail. Now again, when we talk about frail, don't, don't mishear me this morning. I'm not talking about how we look at frail as a negative word. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking more in the sense of when it comes to God, it is God who can snap his finger and the world ceases to exist and there's nothing that man can do about it. It is the same God who spoke the heavens and the earth into existence, who spoke mankind into existence. The same God can speak ending and there is nothing that mankind can do about it. So you see, when you read Psalm 80, the people, the subject, the relationship that they have with God, these words point us to the, the beauty and the purity and the holiness that the people have because of God. The same purity and beauty and holiness that we have today because of Jesus Christ. And yet as we read in this psalm, we see how they are now living amongst the thorns. And these thorns have now put them in great affliction and under great persecution. So when we read Psalm 80 together, this is actually a community lament that ultimately will point us to the testimony of the gospel, which is the testimony of Jesus Christ. In fact, I think John Calvin said it best when he said this particular psalm is a sorrowful prayer in which the faithful beseech God that he would be graciously pleased to support his afflicted church. So notice, in the midst of distress, the people in this psalm are going to cry out to God, and what they're crying out for, what they're pleading for, is for peace to be restored. And so the question before us this morning is, how can peace be restored? And again, not speaking specifically to the peace that exists amongst the body of believers, but the peace that exists between mankind, those who believe in God, and God himself. Well, I believe the psalmist gives us three points this morning on how that peace can be restored. Verses 1 through 3, he tells us that in order for peace to be restored, we have to first remember God. Now again, when we say remember God this morning, we're not talking about the simple acknowledgement that God exists. 
We're not talking about the, uh, the whole, oh, I'm having a bad day, but God, I'm having a bad day, but, but God is out there somewhere. No, what we're talking about this morning is a reminder to the people, to one another, to us today of who God is. We are reminding ourselves, not just that God exists, but we're reminding ourselves of the very character and the very nature of God. Notice with me verse 1, where it says, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. Notice the first thing we hear from the psalmist about God is that he is the shepherd. Now this shepherd and sheep wording literally reflects the common relationship that has existed between God and his people that take us all the way back to Genesis. You see, God has always been referenced as the good shepherd, while the sheep have always been the people of God. In fact, it was Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, verse 24, uses this same analogy when he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But then notice this about the shepherd. The shepherd is not only the good shepherd who cares for his elect sheep, but as the psalmist noticed or notes, he is the only shepherd. He is the chief shepherd. In other words, when it comes to God being the shepherd as his sheep, we acknowledge that God alone rules. We acknowledge that God alone governs. We acknowledge that God alone feeds his people as the shepherd of the flock. So when we read this verse again, we are seeing the psalmist plead with God, the shepherd and the church who are now his sheep, right, praying and pleading to God, saying, O shepherd of Israel, give ear. In other words, the people are now pleading with God to hear their cries. They're pleading with their only source of hope to hear their prayers in the midst of their affliction and the midst of their distress. Now, again, pay attention here because their prayer to God at this moment was not some sort of shot in the dark. They weren't just simply saying, oh God, have mercy on me. They weren't just simply saying, hey, here's this Hail Mary moment in the final second of a football game. Lord, we need a miracle at this moment. No, when they prayed this prayer, they literally knew already that because of the history of their relationship with God, that God would hear him or hear them, and God in his own glory would respond in his timing. So again, in referencing to God, being the shepherd of Israel, they are now reminding themselves, not telling God, they are reminding themselves of the care of God in order to encourage their faith in the midst of the affliction that they are going through and to know that God will not withhold any good from his people. Now, I need to clarify. When I'm talking about good, I don't mean our definition of good. I mean the good that God desires for his people, for his glory. Coming back to the text, the psalmist continues. In speaking of God, God, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Again, the people here acknowledge that God is the one shepherd who now cares for the one flock. Thus in calling the people Joseph, 
This is now a reference to the people of Israel who have been set apart by God. So now notice this about what we've already learned about God. God only rules. God not only governs. God only has all authority. But then pay attention to the shepherd and the character and the nature that's now given to him by the people. Not that it was given to them and now he has it, but he's had it all along and they're being reminded. They're saying, God, not only do you do these things, but God, you lead us gently. God, you, you lead us softly. God, you lead us gradually. You see, in this acknowledgement, we now see that God is the one who leads his people to green pasture. It is God who leads his people out of their sin-filled state and into the pasture that is now covered in his grace and his goodness. We then also learn that God is not only just the shepherd that is now leading his people and and governing his people, but now it is God who is the great king and the judge who sits upon the mercy seat that, according to the text, is enthroned by the cherubim. In other words, it is God and God alone who sits on the throne. This is important. Because too many times we believe that we can remove God from the throne. Okay? I don't say that lightly because here's what happens. There are times in our lives where we want to say, God, move over. I can take this. And the reality is this. God never leaves his throne. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is God Almighty, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. And then notice what the psalmist continues on saying about God. Not only does he sit upon the throne of grace, but he now shines forth through his ability to commune and communicate with his people. Now again, already in this passage, we are beginning to see not only who God is, the nature and the character of God, but we're now beginning to see foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus Christ. Because remember, it would would be Jesus who would come and he would shine like the morning star who would come for all mankind. It was Jesus who would come and he would bring healing upon his wings. It was Jesus who would come and he would bring the glorious light of the gospel with him. So in the midst of a broken plea, we begin to see the promise of a coming Savior. The text continues in verse 2, and it says, Before Ephraim and and Benjamin and Manasseh stir up your might. Now again, the tribes mentioned here represent all the people of Israel. Now to put this in in some historical context so we can kind of understand what's going on around this particular psalm. This psalm was written as the kingdom itself was divided, and ultimately the northern kingdom was beginning to crumble under this new bondage and slavery that it was now under. So we know that whether whether it was Asaph or, or some scholars have argued maybe this was David writing Uh, this particular psalm, we do know uh, that it was either written by one who was living in the midst of this bondage or one who was a part of the southern kingdom that was watching everything take place in the northern kingdom and was literally saying, this is not good. Either way, what we know is this. God was being called upon to come and to lead his people as one who has authority. Again, This is exactly why Jesus Christ came. Jesus came. Remember, he came and he spoke in the temple. And what does it say about Jesus? It says that he took the scroll and he read from it as one who had authority. So notice the people of the psalm are now praying for God, the Messiah, to come. 
They are praying for God and his might, God and his authority to come and to deliver his people, to bring his power and his wrath upon those who have now caused their distress. But again, pay attention because the people aren't praying this prayer hopelessly. Rather, they're praying this prayer because they know that God has done it before. And if God has done it before, then he can do it again. Christian, can you just keep that in mind during this season? All that we have read about, all the prophecies that we have read about have been fulfilled. And so when people tell us, listen, Jesus Christ is not coming back. Ask them this question. Okay, question. Why would God answer everything and then lie about one thing? It doesn't make sense. Matter of fact, it doesn't even fit the very character of God. The text continues, and notice how they pray to God. They say, God, come to save us. Man, this phrase is a powerful phrase. You see, the people weren't looking for God to do something new. Rather, they were assuming on what they already knew to be true about the nature of God. And so literally, they were praying for what it was that had already been promised, which was God would come and deliver them. God would come and save them. I mean, talking about knowing the rest of the story or basically resting in assurance, this psalm really has that. The people knew that God would come to save them from their enemies, and he would come to save them from their their sins, and the curse of the law. In other words, the people in pleading to God knew that they were praying to the God who was the promise keeper, which leads us to verse 3, where they then say, restore us, O God, and let your face shine that we might be saved. Again, this is a refrain that we're going to see two more times in our text, but notice that the people are asking that God, in his grace, God in his power, God, the shepherd who cares, God, the the shepherd who leads and governs, they are praying that God would restore the people back to salvation or back to the grace and the goodness that God and God alone offers. So Christians hear these words in these first set of verses, first three verses, in order for peace to be restored, we need to remember God. Okay, you feeling the frustration of the season? You feeling the, the heartache of the season? Well, let me ask you a question gently and gracefully. Have you, have, you, have you just remembered God for a moment? Have you just reflected upon the grace and the goodness and the beauty that is God? I mean, come on, have you, have you reminded yourself that God alone is the good shepherd? That God alone has and is all that we need? God alone is the one who is seated upon the throne. Therefore, God alone is the great king. And it's God alone who is also the promise keeper. So in this season, we need to remind ourselves, not just that God exists, but remind ourselves of the nature and the character of God and what it is that he has done through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Man, when we do, when we remember that, when we know that through him, we will begin to see peace restored. So let me ask you, in the midst of your stress and in the midst of your worry, And I'm not going to pretend like I know what you're going through right now. Let me ask you this question. Where do you look first? You're dealing with a hard situation? Dealing with a hard person? If you tell me you're not, I know you're not telling me the truth, but that's okay. Story for another day. Where do you look first? 
Do you look to God and his nature? Do you look to what it is that we know to be true about God? Or do you turn your own heart and your own mind where you don't know what will happen, but you ultimately try to fix it yourself? See, when it comes to restoring peace, we need to first remember God. Remember that he is the one in charge, not us. Secondly, I want us to see this from the psalm in verse 4 through 7. We see not only that we are called to remember God, but we see in order for peace to be restored, we need to seek to reconcile. And again, let me clarify what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the reconciliation that needs to occur between the brothers and sisters of Christ. That should just naturally happen if you're a believer. What I'm talking about is the reconciliation that happens between us and God. So let's, let's move into this for a little bit and just see what's happening here because ultimately in this psalm, we begin to see and experience really what's become a broken relationship between the people of God and God himself. Notice verse four, it says, O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? Now, again, uh, this text opens with one more call to who God is. He is literally called the commander of the armies of heaven. Now, more on that to come. But upon initial reading, when you look at verses 4 through 7, it would seem at this point that God is mad at the people. But the reality is this. God's not mad at the people at all, nor is he mad at their prayers. Rather, what we see happening right here in verse 4 is the people are acknowledging that they are the ones who have followed their own selfishness. They are the ones who have turned their prayers from God to prayers of self-righteousness. In fact, when you see the word angry here, that word angry can also be translated as the smoke of the altar of the incense. Which again, at the altar, the smoke was was rising up to the heavens. It was to be a visual reminder that our prayers are lifted up to God. And so what had happened was instead of prayers now going up to God like the, the smoke resembles, they were now going outward as the people had turned to their own self-righteousness, thinking this, God, you're no longer needed. We've got it. So you see, in order to be reconciled to God, we have to turn from our self-righteousness. We have to turn from our, our own sins. We have to turn from our own way of doing things, and we have to turn back to the Word of God. You see, it can no longer be about us or our own glory. I mean, pay attention for a moment. Even what we learn from Jesus Christ as He prays. Remember, Jesus in the garden prayed this way. God, let this cup pass from me. Okay, what do we learn? It is okay to pray your desires. Okay, it's okay. It's really okay. However, continue the prayer. However, Father, not my will, but what? Yours be done. Do you see what's happening here in the prayer, in the garden? We are acknowledging that what we desire more than anything else is in the end that God's will be done. In other words, no longer about me, no longer about my desires, no longer about my selfishness, but about the will of God. This is why, listen, I just got to be honest. We ask this question a lot, and it's this, what is prayer? And and I want to say this next part with as much grace as I can, okay? And please hear me on this, okay? If our answer to prayer is simply just talking to God, I think we're only getting the answer half right, okay? 
Prayer is talking to God, yes, and hearing from God. But at the same time, prayer is now grafting or bending our heart to his will. This is why Jesus was able to pray, Father, not my will, but yours be done. We are, we are getting our hearts aligned and in tune to the will of God. People would then ask, well, where else do you see this? Look at the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus taught them how to pray, what did he say? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Thank you. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, when it comes to being reconciled with God, we have to humble ourselves and say, God, not for us, but for you, for your glory. May your will be done in my life. The text continues. And we hear more about their their self-righteousness that has led to sorrow. Verse 5, it says, And you have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. Now again, these were a people speaking in bondage. They had little to eat and little to drink. And in the midst of their grief, there was just constant tears. They were just ugly crying, if you will. And they were finding that all that they eat and all the drinking was, was now covered within their tears. You see, the people of God in this moment... Their grief was so great because of their own undoing, because of their own faithlessness, that they couldn't stop weeping for what it was that they had done. And again, we're talking not just tears that are shed in the middle of the night that nobody ever hears. I mean, we're talking like ugly cry, like snot everywhere. Just nasty cry. You know what I'm talking about? Where your face gets red, and then it gets real flush. And then I mean, just people are like, what is wrong with you? And you're like, I don't know. Like, stuff is just coming out of me. It was that kind of crying. I mean, think about that for a moment. Isn't it amazing to see in a, in a sorrowful moment, people so in tune with the will of God that they know and they grieve when they've messed up? I just think about that for a moment because, man, we, we, we live in a world full of self-righteousness right now. We live in a world where people don't want to admit their mistakes anymore. But here were the people of God going, I screwed this up. And they weren't just saying, I screwed it up. They were, they were weeping over it. I mean, this is like, this is like that moment where if, if you've got the kids that when they get in trouble, I don't know if this is everybody's children, but you know, you got the kid that when they get in trouble and they know they've done something wrong, they do one of three things. And the third thing, you know, they're not going to do because it's the right thing to do. Okay. Here's what they do. They either, they either try to lie about it and you say, nope, this is true. I saw you. This is what happened. And then what do they do? They either run like mad. They do. They run away, right? Thinking if I hide, you'll never find me. You'll never know the truth. Or they'll just wilt. It's like all of a sudden their bones and muscles just gave out and blah, they're on the floor and, and like tears everywhere, hoping in the midst of their sorrow, all will be forgiven. The third option would be for them to look you in the eye and say, mom and dad, I'm sorry. What I did was wrong. And I'm asking your forgiveness. That doesn't happen, does it? (laughs) Man, it'd be nice if that happened amongst more adults. But anyway, that's another story for another day. You see, in this moment in the text, the people knew what they were doing. They knew by this point that what they had done was wrong. They knew that they had broken relationship with God. They were the ones who did this. And so they grieved not just their situation, but they were now grieving their own sin, which had ultimately led them to this point. And listen, as if matters couldn't get worse for them, okay? In the midst of this ugly crying, look what happens in verse six. They say this, and you make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. I mean, think about this for a moment. These people have broken covenant with God. 
They've, they've broken covenant because of their own selfishness, which led to their sin, and now they are enslaved by it. And, and then all of a sudden, one day they wake up and they recognize that they're in the midst of their sin, and so they begin to weep, and they weep so much. It's like ugly crying that it's like literally getting in their food and, and getting into their drinks, and it's literally like going to your favorite coffee shop and ordering a French vanilla latte with a shot of salty tears. Okay, that's literally what was happening in their life. And then this is what happens. Instead of people coming around them to help them, the people show up, and they start laughing at them. They start mocking them. They're going, look at you, you're ugly. Look at you in the midst of your mess. These enemies of God all of a sudden show up and they they begin to divide the spoil. They begin to exploit the people of God. They're literally mocking them and asking them, where's your God now? They look to them and ask this question, if your God is so real, then why hasn't he saved you? It's the same people today who say of us, your God isn't real, and therefore your God can't save. It's the same people who look at us today and say, it's because of your sin that all this is happening. It's the same people who come to us today and say, well, clearly something's wrong because they're not growing. You see, all these people were doing at this point was adding to the pain. They were adding to the grief that the people of God were now experiencing. And then notice what happens. We get to verse 7 and it says this. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Now again, the psalmist repeats here what he's already said back in verse 3, which this repetition shows what it is the people of God were longing for, which was to be restored into right relationship with God and thus having the support of God. But then notice this. They now add on to their phrase. They say, O God of hosts, which again comes back to knowing the nature and the character of God. They were saying, God, we know that you are the commander of the armies. And so God, we know that you could send the heavenly hosts and the legion of the heavens to silence the critics. God, we call upon you to send your armies to to silence the evil that is now being caused. Because God, you and you alone are the mighty king. And you and you alone are the great commander. Again, brothers and sisters, don't miss what's happening in this text. The people are not experiencing this pain because all of a sudden God has abandoned them. They are experiencing this pain and this grief because they caused it. Their bondage was caused by their own selfishness and their own selfishness led them into sin. Then came the mockery, mockery that was brought on by a covenant which was broken between the people of God and God himself. And it was the people who broke the covenant. And so the only one who can now restore that relationship is God himself. And so the people cry out to God seeking to be reconciled. And yet, as we know, this is going to continue to be the vicious cycle of the people of God throughout the Old Testament. This is a story that will be repeated again and again and again until we get to the Gospels. And so something must be done. Someone has to come to restore peace. And this leads us to our third and final point, which we see in verse 17 through 19, which is this. Not only do we remember God, Not only do we seek to reconcile, but we recognize we ourselves cannot do the reconciling. We need someone to do it for us. And so verse 17 through 19 teaches us that we should look to the Redeemer. 
Now again, the psalmist really is about to acknowledge what God already knew to be true. This was the plan that God had created from the beginning. In fact, if you go back and, and read Genesis, you actually, actually, let me encourage you to do something. I don't know what your Bible reading plan is for uh, 2023, but if you're looking for something new to do, can I encourage you to get yourselves a chronological Bible and you'll know you have a good one on your hands when you open it to page one and it starts with John 1.1. In the beginning was God, or the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And he was with him from the beginning. Start there. And then it goes back to Genesis. Get that book and just begin to read. And then all of a sudden, Psalm 80 verses 17 through 19 will make sense. Because now all of a sudden we see the need for a redeemer. We see something that the people could not do. Only God himself could do. And God established this plan from the very beginning. Notice he says in verse 17. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man, who you have made strong for yourself. I mean, come on, man. I'm not even going to sugarcoat this. We know the psalmist is talking about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. We know this, okay? If you're one of those note takers in your Bible, I don't think they make a red highlighter. But if you've got a red pen, this is a great time to red pen because literally we're talking about Jesus Christ. We know this because he's referred to as the man. We know that he's referred to as the Son of Man, which, oh, by the way, is a common title given to Jesus throughout the Gospels. In fact, he goes a step further just to give us more clarity. He says, the man of your right hand. In other words, there is one who is coming who will possess the power of God, not as if it was given to him by God, but as something that he has always had from the beginning. Remember, Jesus Christ was God. And it was Christ who removed himself from the throne, agreed to humble himself and become man. Now again, it doesn't mean that he just discarded his divinity. No, what we know was that he was both fully human and fully man, meaning 100% man, 100% God, which if you're a theological nerd, there's a phrase for that, and it's called what? The hypostatic union. The most wonderful time of the year to talk about that phrase. Notice the text continues and it says, by his right hand. Again, this is important because we know that all things are upheld, all things are preserved. The people of God themselves, chosen by God, are redeemed by his mighty and righteous right hand. You flip over to the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 41, verse 10, and notice what God says. He says, fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Again, both the prophecy coming from Isaiah and the psalm right here, verse, uh, chapter, Psalm 80, verse 17, is telling us, is pointing us to Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. Nothing has been hidden from him. He is the head. He alone is the good shepherd. He alone has been given all authority. Thus, he alone is the savior of the people and therefore the judge of the world. So when we read Psalm 80 and get to verse 17, the people are crying out for the Messiah to come. They are crying out for the one who can truly redeem them. And so we have to ask ourselves at this point, do we realize that in all of our attempts to be restored back to God, all of our, all of our hopes of, of seeing our relationship being made right with God on our own, all of them will, will fall into utter failure and ruin because only Jesus Christ can do what it is that we have been trying to do all our lives? Coming back to the text, the people were praying 
for the hand of justice to be upon Jesus Christ because Christ alone could bear it. Notice that they recognized that the taking on the justice of God, or better yet, the wrath of God, was not something that they could do. And so atonement at this point was needed. Even the psalmist acknowledges when he says in the text, whom you have made strong for yourself. Jesus Christ has been given all the power. He's been given all the authority to accomplish the purpose, the promise, and the covenant between God and man. Christ alone is the one who brings about salvation for his people. Christ alone brings about the glory of God. And it's Christ alone who could take on the wrath of God. None of us could do it. Only Jesus Christ could. Notice how the people respond in verse 18. It says, and then we shall not turn back from you. Man, give us life and we will call upon your name. Now again, by having the grace of God poured out on them, having Jesus Christ bring justice into their lives, this would encourage the people to stand before God and continue to worship. Now, please pay attention here. This is not an if-then statement. The people are not making a deal with God at this point. Okay, they're recognizing that what they need, only a redeemer could do. What they need, only a savior could do. They needed a savior to help them stand before God. They needed a savior to bring them back into right relationship with God. A redeemer was needed. And so the people in this moment realize that they are dead to their sin. Thus they pray to God for the Messiah to come who gives us life. They knew they were dead to their sin. They knew they needed new life. They knew they needed a redeemer who we know as Jesus Christ. And they knew they needed him so that they could praise the name of the Lord for his glorious gift of grace. And then we come to verse 19, and look at what they say. In light of their need of a Savior, they say, Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Again, here's our third refrain that we have already seen twice earlier in the Psalms. But what I want you to see is notice how with each refrain, the name of God grows even more. Now we've added the word Lord because they know who is truly in charge. Honestly, without getting too far in the subtext here, this is actually a a tip of the cap to the doctrine of the Trinity that is at work in the lives of people, okay? Just check this out. Think about this. God, the giver of the law, the standard of the holiness, which we fall short of, they acknowledge in this psalm. Okay, Jesus Christ is now seen because he's the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, and Lord, and he provides atonement for sins to appease God's justice. What they just said in verse 17 through 19, and then we know the Spirit of God walks with us as we grow, convicts, and offers assurance of our faith, which is a pushback to verses 1 through 3 and what it is that they already acknowledge to be true about God. Now, again, we can unpack this way more, but I don't have time for that, and I don't think anybody wants to be here for four more hours. But anyway, all of this is seen in one simple phrase, oh, Lord God, you should study it. It's amazing. But then pay attention to how the phrase closes. We close again with the prayer of the face of God being upon his people so that they might be saved. And brothers and sisters in Christ, can I tell you this morning for peace to be restored, a redeemer was needed. We can't do it on our own. 
We may think we have all the answers. We may think we're doing all the right things. But man, can I just tell you right now that none of it matters apart from God? None of it matters apart from our relationship with Jesus Christ. We cannot take on the wrath and the justice of God. There is nothing we can do. There is not enough good in this world that we could ever accomplish in order to cover ourselves from the wrath of God, apart from the wondrous work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. So thanks be to God who heard the pleas and the prayer of his people. Thanks be to God who who gave us his Son, our Savior, our Lord, Jesus Christ. A Redeemer was needed. The Redeemer came. And so from the psalm, look to the Redeemer and see the hope that we now have in him. See, faith family, in the midst of our darkest hours, there is light. I'm going to take it one step further. Because I can. And I love it. In the midst of our darkest hours, there will always be light. Look to the Redeemer. See Christ. Know that Christ has come and Christ will come again because in him is salvation. In him is deliverance. In him there is peace. Faith family, Advent is the reminder of the peace that we now have because the Savior of the world has come. And so as believers today, we are living in the fulfillment of this prayer. We are living in the fulfillment of this prophecy. And so we can continue today to have peace because we know that Jesus Christ has come and we know that he is coming again. So live in peace, brothers and sisters. Live in peace by remembering God, who he is, what he has done, the character and the nature of God. Praise him for who he is. Seek to, to reconcile ourselves to God. You know that you've sinned against God. You know that you've, you've taken some things upon yourself. You know you've made some idols in your life. Tear them down and give them back over to the Lord. And then finally, look to the Redeemer. Because Christ alone is the one who can save. Christ alone is the one who gave us the atonement. You see, when we live with these thoughts in our mind and our hearts, we can look ahead to what the Lord will do. And it's in those moments that we will begin to see peace restored. So church, let me say to you today, be at peace. For in Christ there is peace. And because of Christ, peace has come. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together.